And as we start our Advent series called The Arrival, I want to invite the rest of us to open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 1 this morning. So that's the first book in the New Testament. And if you're using one of these Bibles that we provided for you in the rows, it's page 807. It's 807 in the Bibles that we provided for you. And we'll be looking at Matthew's account of the birth of Christ this morning. So I'm thankful for Micah and the team leading us in worship to meditate on these great truths of Jesus and what his arrival means for us this morning. Well, every Christmas season, you know that we are bombarded with advertisements, right? I mean, it starts way before Thanksgiving. I mean, it kind of ramps up with Black Friday coming and Cyber Monday and this and that. And, and so I know maybe, it's, maybe some of you really just, um, you know, are so agitated by the amount of advertisements that you're bombarded with this time of the year. Now, maybe some of you enjoy the thousands, if not millions of dollars that companies will uh, take to invest in this, this venture of seeking to communicate the value of their product or their service, right? So, so I don't know if, if you uh, love uh, the advertisements that you see this time of the year, or if you're just like, man, give me some eggnog, turn off the TV, and let me just kind of chill with family. Maybe that's you. But the reality is we all have to contend with the array of uh, advertisements that we receive this time of the year. I mean, you can't, you can't pop open an app, all right, unless you're paying those premium services. Okay, like you, you pop open your app, you turn on the internet, and it's advertisement after advertisement seeking to get us to buy in to the products that these companies are presenting. Now, I'm sure that if we're being honest, I'm not going to take a poll, but I would have to think that many of us in the room, we've probably already seen an advertisement that's really working, right? It's kind of grabbed our attention. It's pulling us in. It's tempting us to go after a particular product, all right? Now, now maybe, maybe at other times we're, we're kind of reminding ourselves, hey, these, these advertisements um, don't always deliver on what they promise, right? I mean, if we, we kind of think about how shiny they, they look on TV and, you know, how effective they seem to work as we're seeing them, you know, cars crashing in over buildings and jumping off, you know, roofs and stuff. It's like, man, my, my car doesn't do that. Like, what's the deal here? Um, but, 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 but whatever the case may be, we realize that, man, these advertisements, they don't always live up to what they're communicating to us. Now, what I want us to think about this morning is God's communication strategy, all right? The arrival of the Son of God And the baby of Jesus is God's communication strategy to the world. If we want to know what God is like, who God is, what God has done for us, then what we need to do is fix our eyes on the person of Jesus and we will see exactly who God is and what he is like. And unlike the myriad of advertisements that we see in our world, God always delivers on what he promises. 
And so as we dive into this Advent season, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, I want us to consider what the arrival of Jesus means, not only for our world in a general sense, but I want to challenge each of you, where you are right there in your seat, I want you to consider what the arrival of Jesus means for you personally today. We're going to talk about the arrival of the Son of God. Now, as you uh, probably know, there have been many different conclusions drawn about the coming of Jesus. But what I want to contend today is this, that the the birth of Jesus almost 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago, is the most important birth in the history of the world. And I want to share with you four reasons why this this coming of Jesus uh, is is unrivaled, unparalleled over over every other coming of any other human being that's ever come into this world. So I want to give you four reasons why that is true today. And we're going to see this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, okay? Uh, First truth is this. Jesus stands unrivaled in his origins, Jesus stands unrivaled in his origins. I want to read the first 17 verses of Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we're going to find the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, so, so pay careful attention and see if you can, you know, pronounce all of these names next week uh, on your own. All right, I'm going to do my best. Here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittil, and Shittil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Iliakim, and Iliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadak, and Zadak, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now let's just be honest, okay? 
when you read the Bible and you open the Gospel of Matthew and you see all of these names that are somewhat hard to pronounce, your great temptation, let's just be honest, all right, is to kind of skip over those names, right? The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, can I get down to like past these names here? Verse 18, it looks like where we can start. But let me tell you this. If you skip the son of David, the son of Abraham, and see how Jesus is flowing from this Abrahamic line, this Davidic line, then you are going to miss the significance of the unrivaled origins of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Tanner, what do you mean? Why is this such a big deal? Okay, here we go. David is mentioned first, the son of David. Why is this a big deal? David was what? Israel's greatest king. It's why it says that at the end of of, of verse uh, 6, it says, Jesse, the father of David, and who is he? He's the king, all right? But not only was David Israel's greatest king, but David received a promise from God. We call this the Davidic covenant. God entered into a relationship with David, whereby he made promises, and he said, by my own character and name, I will fulfill these promises, And what were these promises to David? Well, uh, listen to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, a dynasty, a lineage for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what we have here in Jesus is the promised Davidic king who is the Messiah. It doesn't get any better than this for an Israelite who was waiting for this forever king who would sit on a forever throne that would be established by God. But one of Matthew's primary concerns, okay, and we're going to even see this more next week, is, is not just that the Messiah would be king For Israel, okay, and we should be glad about this, right, unless you're from Israel, ethnic Jew, which probably most of us are not here today, including myself, Jesus as the the Davidic king, the Messiah, was not simply for Israel. He was for the world. His salvation was cosmic in scope. And so that's why the text goes on to say, not only did God make a covenant with David, but he also made a covenant with this man named Abraham. Now, who was Abraham? Abraham was chosen to have a special relationship with God. God made promises to Abraham that were simply mind-boggling. He said, hey, Abraham, if you look up at the stars and see, and if you can kind of count those stars, they're more than you can count. He said, that's how many descendants you're going to have. You're going to have more descendants than than you can even imagine or believe that you can calculate. But not only this, would Abraham be the father of many nations, But in Genesis 12, verse 3, he says this shocking statement. He says, in you, speaking to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, now what this is pointing to here in the Abrahamic covenant is that there would be someone in Abraham's line 
who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the, wor- of, of the world, all of the people groups. I mean, we have people from all over the world in our church. It's one of the things that we love about Redemption Hill, and we want to continue to be as diverse or even more diverse than we already are. We have people from almost every continent on the globe, and we should be grateful because this Davidic king, this Messiah, is for all the peoples of the world. So just, just, just imagine, if you were a Jew, which the primary audience for Matthew's gospel, Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so any Jew, when you say, son of David, man, they're listening up. It's like shockwaves they are going through their ears. Man, I'm listening up, son of David. But then you ratchet that up with son of Abraham. And man, you have their attention. Essentially what Matthew has done in the person of Christ is he took the 39 books of the Old Testament and he just lit them up saying the promises are pointing to this baby that's going to be born and his name is Jesus. He is called the Christ. But not only that, if you were reading along carefully with me, you notice that there were the names of four women in this genealogy. Now, this was unheard of in that day because women were not viewed as, as women are today. They didn't have the same privileges that women have today. And so, so it's shocking that women would even be included in the genealogy. But, but what is even more shocking is that, th- is that uh, two of these, uh, actually three of these, uh, no, sorry, two. Two out of these four women were, were promiscuous women, okay? You have Rahab, who was a prostitute. You have Bathsheba, who cheated on her, her husband, Uzziah. And then we also have the, the, the lady named Ruth, and who, was a, who was a Moabite. I mean, that's surprising because she's not an, an ethnic a Jew either. Okay, so that's why I was saying three out of the four. That's why I was all stumbling around. Right? Three out of the four are surprising. Two out of the four are promiscuous. Now we're doing the math. We got it straight. And then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so what does this communicate here? This communicates that this Messiah is going to be full of grace. If God can take a prostitute and an adulteress and insert them into the lineage of the Christ, then how could we say, as many people do, hey, I'm beyond the reach of God's grace, I know some of you are thinking that here this morning. I mean, there are two huge reasons why people choose to not follow Christ. One is they don't see the need for Jesus, okay? It's just like, man, I'm all set, I'm good, I've got my, my life straight, and I don't need God in my life because I'm really good on my own, which that's a really faulty assumption that we can talk about later. But that's one camp of people. The other camp of people are saying, you know what, man, I see my need, but man, my, my sin is so great. I've done so many horrible things in my life. How could God ever accept me? But even in the genealogy of Jesus, what we find is that no one, not even Israel's date greatest king, David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? The wife of Uriah. No one is beyond their need of God's grace, and no one is beyond, listen to this, the reach of God's grace. God can reach down and change anyone's life. God can reach down and save anyone out of the mess that they are in. So I hope you'll see that Jesus stands unrivaled 
in his origins. And I don't know, some of you may be thinking, hey, you know, Tanner, man, this is really good, sounding good, I'm kind of excited. But you know what? There were a lot of boys born in Israel who were in the line of Abraham and in the line of David. So what's so special about this particular one? Well, we haven't tripped up Matthew, all right, and his plan, because the text doesn't stop in verse 17. Let's move on to verse 18. What does it say? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So so what we have here is Matthew building his argument to say, not only is Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. But Jesus has eternally been the son of God. And now he's going to tell us how that happened. It says that, that the birth of Jesus took place in this way. The, the word birth could be translated Genesis. Okay, These were the origins of Jesus Christ. And again, they surprise us in how they took place for multiple reasons. Okay, One is that his soon-to-be parents were betrothed. Okay, that means they were engaged to be married in a legally binding kind of way that only divorce would have been able to separate their uh, bond that would soon be consummated in marriage. But there was one major problem in their betrothal, and that is Mary was found out to be pregnant. And Joseph had a major problem on his hands because he knew that they had not yet come together. And I think we all understand what come together means here in the text. They had not become sexually one yet, okay? Husbands, I can see you writing that down for later. Hey, let's come together. And maybe that's kind of some language that we can, you know, use in our households for the glory of God. Um, but, But Joseph, Joseph knew that they had not come together yet, which the only explicable explanation was that Mary had what? That she had been unfaithful, right? That she had cheated on Joseph, that, that, that she became pregnant from another man. And so what was he to do? I mean, can you imagine the emotions that Joseph was experiencing? Was he, was he not sick on the inside? Here, he, he loved this woman. He was committed to her, and he finds out that she's pregnant. What was he to do? I mean, he could have uh, publicly humiliated her, disgraced her before people, but verse 19 says that he was a just man, and he was unwilling to put her to public shame, so he resolved, he had made the decision, hey, I'm going to quietly divorce her so that I can get out of this ungodly, sticky situation, and I can still preserve a measure of honor for Mary. And so as he had resolved, it said the decision was already made. It says in verse 20 that God sends him an angelic messenger to say this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear 
to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, here in verse 20, we have one of the great truths of Christianity, one of the great mysterious, mind-bending truths of Christianity, that Jesus was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, you would, you would uh, be, be uh, you know, have your hopes a little too high if you thought that I was going to be able to give you a perfect explanation of how the Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive and Jesus was born, conceived in her womb. But I can tell you this. What I find so remarkable about Matthew's account and his report of the virgin birth is actually just how unremarkable it is. It's just this one line in his gospel where he says that the, the, he gives this angelic report that, that she will conceive in her from the Holy Spirit and she's going to, to birth this child. And so the, the New Testament writers, they simply state it as a, as a statement of fact. This is the way it is. This is what God has done. And if you think that's shocking, if that kind of makes you uneasy, let me just say this. If you can accept the first verse of the Bible that says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, if you can accept this one verse that begins the Bible, this supernatural God who's working his supernatural power, then how hard is it to accept Matthew chapter 1, verse 20? It's really not that hard at all. In fact, if you don't believe in the supernatural, uh, then you can't accept the central tenets of the faith. Right? I know there's some mystery here. I know it bends our, our rational and intellectual minds in, in the Western world, but, but most of the world actually has no trouble believing in the supernatural and these amazing works that God is able to do. And so not only did the, the gospel writers uh, wholeheartedly affirm this and just simply state it as fact, but the early church also affirmed this as well. All the major creeds, state that Jesus was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Nicene Creed. Beautiful words here. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. So being born of Mary, Jesus was, was fully man, but being conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus was fully God. And this is critical because we need a sinless Savior in order to be the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross for our sin. This also, Matthew points out, was predicted a long time ago. Verse 23 is a quotation of a verse in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, that was written more than 700 years before the arrival of Christ. There Isaiah predicts, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, many scholars who, who don't believe in the divinity of Christ want to say, well, no, this, this, this prophecy was fulfilled in that time. And yes, there, there, there was a, 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 
one that was, that was born uh, a century later that some would point to. But, but listen, what, what Isaiah is doing here, this miraculous sign that, that he would be born of a virgin, number one, that is, is, is significant enough to say, hey, this is pointing to Messiah. But then just two chapters later, listen to what Jesus says, uh, I mean, Isaiah says of this, this child who was to be born. Chapter nine, verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles that can be attributed to no mere man, only the Son of God. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And how is this all going to go down? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the magnitude of the moment of the incarnation is, is basically impossible to calculate. Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. But if we, if we read the text carefully, we'll notice that Matthew doesn't dwell on the, the, the incarnation. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't go into an extended you know, uh, uh, piece on, on, on how Jesus came. He wants to get to why he came. And so look back in verse 21, what it says here. It says, she will, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus not only stands unrivaled in his origins, he not only stands uh, unrivaled in that he is the divine son of God, but Jesus also stands unrivaled in that he is the savior of all people. The angel gives specific instructions to Joseph, okay? He says, you shall call his name Jesus, and any Jewish family would have had no problem with this because uh, the name Jesus was actually a very common name in first century Israel, okay? Why was that? Well, number one, uh, the, na- the name Jesus just comes from the, from the word Joshua. This would have been Jesus' common name uh, as he was walking the streets of, of Nazareth, okay? Joshua was one of the, the key characters in the Old Testament who did what? He led the people into the promised land after the death of Moses. He was a pretty important leader in the history of Israel. But what does the name Jesus, Joshua, mean? Yeshua in the Hebrew. It means God saves. God saves. And so, Again, we would say, well, man, a lot of boys had that name. I mean, this, is, this was not uncommon. Well, every, everyone believed in Israel that, that God saved. Well, what makes this unique? Well, what does the angel say? It says, he, he, goes, he says, uh, for he will save his people from their sins. So, so, so do you see that? It's this, it's this child. He will save his people from their sins. And so the, his earthly name, Jesus' earthly name, signified his divine rescue mission. 
And his rescue mission was to bring salvation in the most comprehensive manner that we can imagine. I want you to think of this at kind of two levels. Okay, we're going to zoom out for a minute and think about the cosmic scope of the salvation that Jesus brings. Okay, and then we're going to zoom in and see how it's intimately personal. All right, first off, I want you to think about how how cosmic in scope this salvation that Jesus is bringing truly is, okay? We live in a broken world. Does everyone agree with that here? Can you just kind of nod your head for me? Like, man, this world is broken. This world is not as good as it gets. We look around and we see all of of the, the tragedy and the suffering and the evil that abounds in our world. And the Bible tells us that this is a result of what theologians call the fall. When Adam and Eve distrusted in the love and goodness of God and they rebelled and did their own thing, it brought tragic results into our world known as the curse. Where now sin and death entered into our world and this good world that God made became fractured and broken and all of this evil and suffering now has entered into the picture. So that's why we see disease and disaster. That's why we see oppression and injustice. It's why we have financial and relational problems. Can anyone identify with that? It's why we have frustration in our work. If you ever get frustrated this month in your job, just know that that is a result of the fall. Not to mention that we all carry many wounds that often run very deep. But none of that was part of God's original design. One of my favorite aspects of this time of the year are all the different Christmas songs and hymns and carols that we sing. And one of my favorite songs, I didn't get the significance of it as a child, but I liked the tune as a child, is Joy to the World. And it's either the third or or fourth verse that that says this, um, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, right? Far as the curse is found. I'm not gonna sing it for you, but that is what Jesus has come to do. Okay, do you see that? Every effect of the fall, all of our frustration, all of the injustice, all the protests that are going on around our country, all of these cries for justice and peace and rest that every single one of us long for, they were not in God's original design. And because of Jesus, they will not be in the new heavens and new earth that all who believe in Christ will experience with him one day. So we need a Savior who is powerful enough to save us from the comprehensive effects of our sin. But more than that, we need a Savior who can save us at a very personal, intimate level, and this is what Jesus has come to do. You see, there is not only a huge mess around us, there is not only brokenness around us, but there is a mess and there is brokenness within us. We all when it comes to God's ways, when it comes to God's intention for our lives, we have all said to God, God, my ways are better than your ways and my wisdom is better than your wisdom. So I know that you want me to live in this kind of way, but I'm gonna go my own way, I'm gonna do my own thing, and and this is the essence of sin. Sin is missing the mark of God's intention. It, it is, it is uh, an, an infinite offense because 
It is an offense against the infinite holiness of God. We need to wrestle with how serious, how grave, how weighty our sin is before God. We need a radical solution for the predicament that our sin brings our heart, that we are spiritually separated from God and we will die one day apart from him and spend an eternity in hell apart from the grace of God to save us. So I want you just for a moment to think about your life. Think about your past week. Think about this last year. Think about, think about even further than back than that. Every stroke of impatience, every hint of jealousy, every self-serving move, every form of pride, every time we neglected the good that we knew that we should do, all of these things in our heart that come out of our life, the Bible says, man, that is sin against God. And that causes us to receive spiritual death. But this is what makes the gospel so good. This is what makes the arrival of Jesus so significant, is that God has provided an alternative. He's provided a way out of this mess that we are in. He has provided life in the place of death so that if we look to the gift, the greatest gift that he offers us in Christ, and we turn from our sin and we turn to God through trusting in what Christ has done for us, then we can have our relationship with God rectified and made new. And we can experience all that God offers us in him. Man, it is not a cheap life. It is not a boring life. It is a life that is full of joy and fullness and vitality and peace. And so if you are here today and you are thinking about who Jesus is and what he has done, and you know that man, you have never really truly made your life right with God, the invitation to you today is to receive the gift of salvation that God offers you in Christ. Because Jesus did what we could never do. We were to honor God with our lives. We were to live a life that glorified God, but we didn't do that. So Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. Being born of a virgin, sinless, he lived a sinless life. But not only that, he died a cruel death in our place, the death that we should have died. Jesus died for us so that if we trust in him and trust in his righteousness, we can have the life of God through him. So the name Jesus tells us what this baby will do. He will save us from our sin. But the fourth magnificent truth that I want you to see this morning tells us more about who he is. Not just what he will do, but who he is. Jesus stands unrivaled as God with us. Start back in verse 22 of chapter one. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Jesus is not only our great Savior. 
Jesus stands unrivaled because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was not simply a great teacher. Some people want to reduce Jesus to this. And we don't, I mean, if we don't know what to do with Jesus, then we just do what makes us feel comfortable, right? So it's more, it's more comfortable to say, Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus was superiorly uh, moral. There was no one more moral than Christ. But Jesus was so much more than this. Jesus was God with us. He is God with us. Remember in the beginning, we said that Jesus communicates the very nature of God. Jesus is God's communication strategy. And so if we go back to the gospel of John, we can see how John was working this out. Look at, look at verse one of, of John chapter uh, one. Here it is on the screen. In the beginning was the word. Okay, John is calling Jesus the word. He is the communication, the revelation of God. And the word was with God and the word was God. In the very beginning, God the son was God. They share the same essence. Verse 14. Now, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of what? Full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. He who is at the father's side. Speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus because Jesus was God with us. I mean, how can we be be bored? How can we be indifferent when we look at the glory of Christ? It's like my, my boy KB, Kevin Burgess. He was, he's a rapper. I, I like to listen to him sometimes when I'm preparing my sermons, you know, keep it straight. He says this, if you think this is boring, you got crooked sight. All right? I'm just going to say that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate KB. I'm just going to tell you like it is. If you think this is boring, full of grace and truth, God with us, the glory of God revealed. If you think this is boring, you just have crooked sight. Spiritually, you just, you're not seeing straight yet, okay? And it's, it's my job to help give you some corrective lenses. Actually, God does that. I just am the messenger to tell you uh, what God has said. So, So God has sent his son to be among us. He is the revelation of God. But not only is is Jesus completely divine, he was also, as we said, completely human. So don't miss this. Sometimes we we focus so much on the divinity of Christ that we, we downplay or underplay his humanity. But it's in Christianity that I want you to consider this. We have a God who is not only transcendent. Most most religions are comfortable with a transcendent God who is over all things and, and sovereign over all things. But not every religion has a God that is both transcendent over all and a God who is eminent, near, with us. So because God became man, Jesus understands our suffering, our difficulties. Jesus got tired. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was alone. He knew what it meant to be rejected. 
Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can identify with all of the challenges that we face in life. This is part of the reason why he stands unrivaled as the one and only Son of God. So no matter how joyful this season may be for you, or no matter how hard the season may be for you, know that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He wants to walk with you through whatever it is that you are facing. In Jesus, we have the strength of God to sustain us and enable us to live our life for him. And so this morning, as we think about the arrival of of Christ and the gift that God has brought us in him. Here is the nature of a gift, and I think you understand this. A gift is not truly a gift until it is received by the intended recipient. And so my greatest encouragement to you today, whether it is for the first time or for the thousandth time, is to embrace the arrival of Jesus and the salvation that he brings to the world. Have you truly embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you experiencing the salvation that he brings to the world? Because as you're hearing in these baptism testimonies, and any true Christian can tell you, man, our lives are not the same. We don't see people the way we once did. We don't love people like we once loved. In fact, we didn't have the capacity to love like God loves, as Gina already shared with us this morning. And so I hope that as you're hearing these things, you are thinking to yourself, how can I hear these truths about Jesus and not want to embrace them with my life? And so today, as we celebrate Advent, as we celebrate uh, these baptisms, I want to challenge each one of you, receive the salvation that Jesus died to bring you. Admit that you need God. Believe in what Christ has done and turn and give your life. Commit your life to him. There is no greater decision that we could ever make in this life. And so I'm about to pray And then we're going to witness baptism. And let me just explain what baptism is about, okay? Baptism is is really two important things I want you to know about baptism, okay? Number one, baptism is a drama of the gospel. It's a drama of salvation. You're going to see these people go under the water because they have died with Christ. They have died to their old way of life. And God has made them new on the inside. And they've been raised to, to live a whole new life for God. And so baptism is an an outward expression of an inward reality. That's why we say it's a drama of salvation. But not only that, not only is baptism a drama of salvation, baptism is a declaration of salvation. So that when someone says, Jesus is my Lord, and they're willing to say that in front of uh, hundreds of people, then they're telling the world, man, I'm a follower of Christ. My life is given to him. And let me just end with this, okay? Here's an encouragement, not only for these four that are being baptized, but for every single one of us in this room. If you have received Jesus as your Lord, then now, guess what? You are God's communication strategy. You are. Jesus said, what, after he rose from the dead, as the Father has sent me, even so. I am sending 
you. So let's celebrate together the drama of salvation, the declaration of salvation. And let's go this week, December 8th through 14th, and bring some people to Jesus through our words, through our lives, and invite them to come worship with us next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son and that in the arrival of your son, you have given us everything. You have given us life. And so, Lord, would you, even as we celebrate and hear more testimony of what you've done and as we see the picture of baptism, God, would you provoke our hearts to praise and worship you? Lord, we pray that we would be enamored by the the, the beauty and glory of Christ and that we would want to live our lives wholeheartedly for him. Lord, this is what we pray for as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.